0: John hearing will please come to order. Mr. Lyman will resume the questioning. Mr. Lyman.
1: I don't- Did you receive any formal training in conducting covert operations? No, sir. It was all on-the-job training?
0: That's a good way of putting it, sir. I got a lot of guidance, of course, from (coughs) Director Casey, who is widely revered as an expert.
1: When uh, you were on active duty in the Marines, uh, were you involved in any special operations, as they use that term?
0: Uh, Per se, no. Uh, The military units I were with were conventional military units.
1: And you served in Vietnam uh, during what period, sir?
0: 1968,
1: 1969. Now, when you got drawn into the uh, Iranian venture in November in connection with the um, Transactions, as I understand uh, your testimony, you had conversations with, among other people, Mr. McFarlane, Admiral Poindexter, various CIA personnel, uh, uh, Defense Minister Rabin of Israel, Ministry of Defense people in Israel, and Department of Defense personnel.
0: This is in November of 1985. Right. Yes.
1: And As the transaction was first presented to you at that time, is it fair to say it was presented as a straight arms for hostages transaction?
0: And I don't mean to give a longer-than-necessary answer, Counsel, but there had been a number of discussions during the summer with, uh, as I recall, Mr. Schwimmer, Mr. Ledeen, I think eventually Mr. Gorbanifar at some point during the uh, summer or autumn. Uh, In each of those cases, certainly every time I talked with Mr. Ledeen, he always had a vision of a broader objective. Nonetheless, by the time I became operationally engaged in November, uh, the proposition was put forward, at least in terms of the finding, as a straight arms for hostages transaction.
1: And without taking much time, your notes of um, of the um, the period, November 20, for example, describes 120 hawks equals five American citizens, and a guarantee that no more in the sentence isn't completed, but no more would be taken, or no more terrorism, <laughs> I assume.
0: I, I do recall those. T- kinds of things being discussed. I don't, I don't want to commit myself to the fact that it was November 20th without looking at it, but I, do we have an exhibit number? I can Yes,
1: there is an exhibit uh, number. It's Exhibit 356. And is, are these, does this have letters on it? It would have Q1327 on it but I can uh, read it. It has Iranians herding for cash, goes on and says, 120 hawks, one, five American sits, two, guarantee that no more. Could you just hand them this? This is a um, and on this it should be easy.
0: And, I, and again, I, just to make note of the fact that uh, as I got more engaged in this thing as time went on, uh, I made a, a definite effort working with Mr. Sporkin and others at CIA to include in a, in a finding the broader objectives that I thought ought to be there. And I think that Mr. McFarland shared and, and certainly the President.
1: Colonel. Uh, When the finding was done in November, uh, it was a finding that was straight arms for hostages, and that described the state of play on the Israeli hawk transaction. Fair to say? And the previous tow transaction. And the previous tow one. And the point that I wanted to uh, elicit is that uh, the Tower Board report Indicated that this started as a broad initiative and evolved during your period of management of it into a straight um, uh, arms for hostages transaction. And is it f- fair to say? is it fair to say that from the time of your active involvement in November, you found it as an arms for hostage transaction and it evolved or you attempted to evolve it into something that was broader.
0: Well again, I was, and I, I'm not trying to pass the buck at all, uh, counsel. In the discussions I had and the very first person to address this issue with me, I, I believe was Mr. Ledeen, he clearly saw, uh, envisioned the broader objectives. and even though that initial finding did not articulate that. And I think that's probably because of the compartmented nature of the preparation of that uh, initial finding. Uh, It's almost cyclical. You had an intent back in June, July, August, whenever all that began. Uh, The expression of that intent, I, I think, is flawed in that November finding. And my effort was in January to get it back on track. And that, that was certainly shared in the discussions I had with Director Casey, one of which was at his, at his home, in the preparation of that second
1: finding. Well, let's let's just take it step by step. You went in uh, January, in December, to London, uh, with Mr. McFarland. That is correct. correct. And uh, that was a he joined uh, me
0: in, in in London.
1: And and that was a trip that uh, followed a meeting that Mr. McFarlane had had with the principals of the NSC. Apparently so. I was not at that meeting. Did he tell you about the discussion at that meeting? In general terms, Did he tell you that um, the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense and the Chief of Staff were opposed to uh, proceeding with um, the Iranians? I don't recall mention of the Chief of
0: Staff. I do recall him mentioning specifically that Uh, Both Secretary Schultz and Secretary Weinberger were not uh, enamored of the proposal. I do not recall him expressing their stringent objections.
1: Did he tell you that he wanted to go to London to make his own assessment of Gabonafar? Yes. And you were with him when he met with Mr. Gabonafar in Nimrati's apartment?
0: I was with him when we met with Mr. Gorbanifar, and I, I know the, the area of London, but I couldn't div- give you a definitive ownership of the building, but and Mr. Nimrati was there.
1: And uh, is it correct that that meeting was one in which Gorbanifar was negotiating for a certain amount of, of tolls for a certain number of hostages, and it was a... a Bargaining uh, by by Cabanifar of weapons for hostages.
0: Well, it was that, but it was all it was. It was very typical of the discussions with Mr. Gorbani far. Uh, it was wide-ranging, uh, rambling, uh, very uh, disconnected in some respects. Uh, he clearly mentioned, and I, I recall it because he is a, an effusive man. Uh, talking about uh, the fact that there were potential openings uh, that could be achieved, uh, talked about terrorism, uh, as did Mr. McFarlane in the meeting. But it was very clear that Mr. Gorbanifar was trying to establish a price uh, which, as you know from my records, I found to be most unpalatable for a number of weapons
1: for, for a number of Americans. and. Uh, did, um, did Mr. McFarlane also uh, find that unpalatable, that lives for uh, for U.S. arms? I, again, you're asking me to get... Did he express something? it? Uh, yes. And, in fact, I... Uh, Did he not tell you that he was going to recommend to the President of the United States that you have nothing more to do with Gorbanifar?
0: My recollection is that that the outcome of that meeting was that unless we could get beyond Gorbanifar and establish direct contact with Iranians, that this was probably not going to work in the long run, that we were not going to achieve our objectives. And I I share that belief, and I think I testified to that yesterday.
1: Did you, when you returned uh, from London with um, uh, Mr. McFarlane, brief the President of the United States?
0: I was in that briefing, as I recall, yes. and And I probably made some contributions to it, but my recollection is that Mr. McFarlane and I went to uh, a regular morning briefing with the President. I may be
1: incorrect in that it was a long time ago. Uh, did you also uh, prepare uh, a report on the meeting?
0: I probably did. I prepared papers on almost everything
1: uh, did you do you recall telling the president of the United States, that if the um, Iranian venture was discontinued at that time, that the lives of the hostages might be taken?
0: I recall certainly very clearly putting that kind of message forward. I don't necessarily recall saying it point blank to the President that morning, but I very clearly saw that as a possibility. Certainly the Israelis did. And I think to uh, at least a certain extent that was shared by the people with whom I worked at the CIA. Our concern was that having started the route, wisely or unwisely, that having started that in August and September and having a disaster on our hands in November as a consequence of what the Iranians clearly saw as a double-cross, that we had indeed increased the jeopardy to the hostages rather than reduced it, that kind of. Uh,
1: If you look at uh, Exhibit 51, it's a memorandum of December 9 uh, from you to uh, Mr. McFarlane and Admiral Poindexter. a december nine memo. It's headed Next Steps. And at page three, in describing the options, it says do nothing. Very dangerous since the United States has in fact pursued earlier presidential decision to play along with Gabonafar's plan. U.S. reversal now in midstream could ignite Iranian fire, hostages would be our minimum losses. Remember that, that um, Colonel?
0: Yes, I, yeah. I wrote this document, and I, but I think it's important, Council, to point out that I was presenting forward, as I try to do in, in most cases, options that we had if we wished to pursue any initiative in getting our... Americans back. Well, and well part of your
1: role was to point out to the president or his <coughs> national c- security advisor the opportunities and the risks, correct? That's correct. And you were uh, pointing out the risk of abandoning uh, further arms uh, sales to Iran uh, in terms of saying that they might take out uh, reprisals on the hostages. Isn't that so?
0: That is correct. At, and at at the least.
1: Yes, and uh, when you say at the least, did Gorbanifar make those threats or was that an opinion that you and some of your colleagues and the Israelis uh, formed? I don't, I don't recall
0: Gorbanifar making that kind of a threat. I mean Gorbanifar was obviously in a, in a very difficult situation. He had made commitments on behalf of the Israelis perhaps or others uh, that what they would deliver in December would be responsive to what they had asked for. And he's, he had a big problem on his hands. At the same time, the Israelis saw their uh, original initiative uh, foundering. Uh, I know that uh, Mr. Kimke, uh, with whom I conversed uh, on this, both in London and before and after, expressed this kind of a view.
1: Now, did. At the the briefing that you had with the President of the United States, did he ask uh, Mr. McFarlane's opinion as to whether you should go forward? I don't recall that part of the discussion. Did you express a view as to whether you should go forward? If I did, and
0: again I do not recall that specifically, but if I did, it was to advocate that we do something, that this whole thing not lead to the kind of outcome that is forecast right there. Meaning the loss of the hostages. Exactly. Uh, And the potential
1: for further reprisals. I think that's
0: important.
1: Was there any discussion about the fact that having started down the road of dealing with Iran on arms, we were now becoming hostage to that very process.
0: I always felt that way, and I think that's articulated in this memorandum.
1: And was there any discussion of the fact that if we started selling them arms, that once we stopped, we were gonna run the risk that more hostages would be taken?
0: Yes, and and there was frequently discussion of that aspect of, of this whole initiative. But, but again, I, and I want to make it very clear, we believed, I believe then and I still believe today, that had we been able to get to a point where we would have had a meeting with, for example, uh, the Vice President and Rafsanjani, which was a proposal I advocated at some point along in here, uh, by virtue of uh, intermediate level or low level staff contact like I was going to do, that we could get beyond that risk and that, and that w- once you had established the dialogue that we were seeking to establish, that we could, in effect, start working an outcome to the Iran-Iraq war which would then lead to a reduced need okay. for this kind of thing to begin with. Uh, and uh, this is important because much... Uh, Uh, jocularity has been created over the fact that I gave a tour of the White House Well, I'm not joking about it. I know that, but I I would like to say this, Counsel. One of my purposes for taking the Second Channel, who was also a brave young man and also a soldier in his country, through the White House, was to show him the Nobel Prize that was won by Teddy Roosevelt. And I took him into the Roosevelt Room and I showed him that prize. And I said, this is a Nobel Peace Prize, in fact, the first one ever given to an American. And it was given to a president who saw that it was to the advantage of our country and to world peace to sit down in Portsmouth and have a conference with two adversaries, the Russians and the Japanese, who were fighting a war thousands of miles away from us that had no immediate impact on America, and we solved it. And, and that's what I was talking to the young Iranian about, and that's the kind of thing that I was proposing that help us get beyond arms as a, as a liability
1: or arms for hostages. Co- Colonel, yes. did you believe that when you were talking to that young man, it was the equivalent of talking to people like Cho Lai, which Kissinger did? No. Did you not realize, sir, that you were dealing with a country that had very, very strong feelings toward the United States, expressed, Great by, by, expressed by a very, very powerful leader. I knew well
0: exactly what he yeah. was and what the leadership represented. I also noted the fact that during the time that we were pursuing this initiative, there were no acts of terrorism addressed against Americans, and sure. that the rhetoric from that very strong leader against us was reduced considerably. Colonel.
1: Uh, Colonel there's a saying that uh, failure is an orphan the committee has heard testimony and will hear testimony that Secretary Schultz was opposed to this venture Secretary of defense was opposed to it. The meeting on uh, December 7th, the uh, chief of staff was opposed to it. Mr. McFarland said that when he returned uh, from London, he was opposed to it, testified under oath. Had you become the principal advocate of having this program go forward?
0: I don't believe I was the principal advocate, certainly Director Casey was always a supporter of it because he saw several objectives that could be achieved by it. And I would simply observe that, like some of my other activities, the opposition that I heard was far more muted while we were doing it than it ever was after it failed or after it was exposed. And I kind of get the feeling, Council, that there were a lot of people who were kind of willing to let it go along, hoping against hope that it would succeed, and willing to walk away when it failed. I'm not necessarily advocating that that's the way things ought to be, but this was a high-risk venture. We had an established person to take the spear, and we had hoped we'd established plausible deniability of a direct connection with the U.S. government. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's a bad thing, that high-risk uh, operations like this or activities mm-hmm. like this, it's understandable that people don't complain too loudly while they're happening, as long as they can
1: be assured of protection if it goes wrong. Colonel, when you said there's an, there was an established person to uh, take the spear, again, you're referring to yourself. That can be answered, I think, yes, no? Yes. And uh, Mr. McFarland testified when he was here and when he was shown this memorandum of uh, yours that we just looked at, December 9, 1985, uh, that he was surprised, or shocked, Uh, that you were still promoting this um, uh, initiative when he was opposed to it. Do you recall him being opposed to it and expressing that opposition at your meeting with the president?
0: Mr. McFarlane, I recall expressed concern that unless we got beyond Gorbanifar that we would not succeed. I shared that.
1: Now, were you told following this meeting with the president that the president wanted to make another try? I was told to initiate another effort. And who gave you those instructions? Admiral Poindexter. Uh, Were they given at the meeting? Did the President express a position at the meeting?
0: I don't recall that those instructions were given at the meeting. I was simply uh, told to pursue another initiative, and I did. And 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 I want you to point out that Director Casey was a very strong advocate of this. You have to remember at the time,
1: we believed
0: that mr buckley was still being held and that we had some indications that he was being tortured and some of the things we discussed last night were possibly
1: the subject of his torture well uh, wasn't uh, it the fact that you also had information at that time that he was dead you just didn't know we did not know and Uh, Were you meeting with, uh, uh, did you meet with uh, Director Casey after you returned from London? I did. And did you express your point of view that the hostages would be killed or could be killed and there could be further reprisals if you didn't uh, go forward with the initiative?
0: Yes, and I believe Director Casey uh, articulated those same views. uh, Was anyone
1: else with you? It's unimportant. Uh, I don't 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 recall. But Uh, I I, I think
0: Director Casey was on record. My recollection is that there were documents he sent forward which articulated the same view. I'm quite confident that I showed him this directive, this this, uh, memorandum.
1: Did uh, Director Casey tell you that he would speak to the president about it? I don't recall him ever saying that to me. You know,
0: our relationship was not one that I'd say, you know, Mr. Casey, you've got to go to the president and talk to him about this, or that he would tell me about that.
1: Now, you talked yesterday about the fact that it's important for the United States to have some constancy in its foreign policy. To recall that? That's correct. Uh, You were aware at this time of Operation Staunch, correct? Yes, I was. And Operation Staunch represented the official United States policy against shipping arms, Uh, into uh, Iran and Iraq, Iraq, correct? That's right. And we had a very strong view that we wanted to, to not have arms trade taking place there. That's correct. We weren't very successful in stopping it, that's fair to say, correct? Not in the least. But we were still making protests to our allies and friends when we were able to find out that they were shipping, correct? Generally, yes. And were you told that the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense had said that this would undermine the United States' credibility if all of a sudden we became a supplier of arms? I never heard that during the course of this activity. No one brought that to your attention? Never. Was one of the reasons for wanting to have Israel involved so that we could say it was Israel that was selling and Israel, everyone knows, sells arms?
0: Well, Israel was already involved, and we were going to continue to pursue it's it in such a way as part of the plausible deniability. That's and correct. And part
1: of the plausible deniability.
0: Did um,
1: did, <coughs> Mr. S- Sullivan, refresh your recollection where you want to add to the answer because I'm not saying that in criticism. I am saying that so that if there is something that should be added to this record, it should be added. Uh, Next question, Mr. Lyman. Now, I did, was the point of, was, was the point of view expressed to you that we have to keep Israel involved in this so that it can be blamed on them if um, it's exposed? I I don't want
0: to use the word blame. I, I don't think I ever used it, but very clearly, because this was a covert operation, a covert activity to the extent that we could have several layers of plausible deniability, it would serve our purposes. <laughs> and do and, and, and as, because of staunch and the rest of it, we did not want the US government's hand in, or role in this activity exposed. And thus, we were, as I said earlier, we, we tried to mirror the Israeli model, if you will, of, as they did, they set up a private citizen in the case of, or citizens, I think they're private citizens, Schwimmer and Nimrati. We tried to mirror the same thing when we got engaged in it, and to separate the U.S. government as far as possible from recognizable involvement.
1: But you not only wanted the private citizen, in our case, uh, General Secord, but you also wanted the Israelis there. So, uh, is that correct? That is correct. And do you recall uh, uh, conveying that message that Mr. Neal showed you in code uh, to the Israelis, asking them if they could live with no comment if it became exposed?
0: I believe that was their idea, and, well, and, that's, and we agreed to it. We <laughs> all agreed that there would be no comment if this activity were well, I'll show
1: you the message if it's necessary, but I can tell you now that the message attributes that to Joshua. You thought when you first saw it that Joshua oh, may remember. have been an yeah. Israeli, but we all know that Joshua is number one president, right? That's right. And um, now, uh, you knew from your meetings with the president that he had deep concern for the welfare of these American citizens who are hostages. He wanted them home. And uh, did you um, uh, uh, tell um, Mr. Uh, Cook of the um, Defense Department, as he's testified here, that the president was quote, driving you nuts, end of quote, to get the hostages back by Christmas.
0: I don't recall that uh, conversation. A lot of things have been attributed to me that I allegedly said. I don't recall saying that.
1: Were you being pressured to get them back in a hurry?
0: It was always very clear that our objective was to get as many home as fast as possible.
1: That is different from my question. Did the President of the United States ever uh, make statements to that effect to you? I heard the President say, I mean the
0: President never turned to me and said, Ollie, I want him home by Christmas. But the President very clearly articulated in the meetings I was in with him and with, with him in the Oval Office on this issue and the meetings that I attended with him with the hostage families It was very clear that the President wanted as many Americans home, all of them home, as fast as possible.
1: Uh, Colonel, uh, your notes for January indicate uh, a reference to the fact that you wanted them back in time for the State of the Union message. Do you recall that at all? I don't, but if you'll show me the note, I'm sure it will refresh my memory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you recall any conversations to that effect? No. We'll get you that uh, that note. Uh, Mr. Hakim testified under oath here uh, that you told him that the president was exerting uh, uh, pressure on you uh, to uh, get the hostages back by um, in time for the elections in November of 1986. The President of the United States
0: never told me that, nor did any other person. I may have said that to Mr. Hakim to entice him to greater effort,
1: but I certainly didn't hear that from the President. So that was your idea? Yes. And no one in the administration gave no you one, that
0: idea? No one,
1: ever. I, I can assure you, counsel,
0: that the President's concerns for the hostages outweighed his political ambitions or political concerns, they were truly humanitarian and, and, I, and I don't think it would be right to leave any doubt about that. In fact, the president was willing to take great political risk
1: in pursuing this initiative. Did you, Did you? Um, uh, when um, you told Hakim uh, this, think it was right to attribute that to the president?
0: Well, as you have in the tape recordings I made with every meeting I had with the Iranians, I said a lot of things that weren't true. And again, I'd, I'd have told them they could have free tickets to Disney World or a trip on a space shuttle if it would have gotten Americans home.
1: Whose side did you think Hakim was on, the Iranians or ours? Oh, he's on our side. And did you think that he needed an inducement in order to try to Get the deal done I think I think exhausted men who are working very, very hard sometimes need all kinds of inducements and the inducement that you thought would help them was to say that the president of the United States wants trying to back put a by, date by trying to put a November. date certain
0: and, and get them out by then uh,
1: the uh, the message that I was referring to you, to in your Notes is for what it's worth on page Q1438 of Exhibit 358, and it says, Try to get results by State of Union, State of the Union. But you have said, as I understand it here, it's going to be passed to him, it's easier to read. Colonel, you will spare your eyesight if you look at this. Miss Copy here.
0: The one you, you've given me, sir, is a call from Noel Cook, sixty three hundred nineteen seventy five. Once we have agreement...
1: If you keep reading down, you'll see the reference, if you look at it in a type form... Try
0: to get results by State of the Union, right, which was coming up.
1: Well, who originated that? Oh, I'm sure it was me. was the date certain, it was visible out there. Did you regard yourself as having a political objective?
0: I have absolutely no political ambitions whatsoever. That I isn't assure you, I'm not running for anything, and I'm certainly not running from anything.
1: Did you regard yourself as having a political objective for the president? I think everything that is done on the National Security
0: Council staff ought to have some recognition that there are political concerns.
1: Now, uh, you, when, when the decision was made by the president Uh, to go forward once again the uh, NSC turned to Oliver North and said, get it done, right? That's correct. And you found yourself in the middle of having to write a new finding, clean up the old finding, right?
0: In early January or late December, somewhere along in that time frame. And you
1: worked with um, uh, Mr. Uh, Sporkin on that? Among others. And uh, ultimately, there was a finding signed on uh, January 6, and then the January 17th finding. You recall that now? I do. And do you recall that the uh, uh, draft that Sporkin gave you, Judge, Judge Sporkin gave you, had as options notify the Congress or defer notification of the Congress?
0: Yes, Remember I that? Do. I do. And who made the
1: decision uh, to uh, not notify the Congress at that time?
0: My recollection is that uh, both options were presented to the National Security Advisor and I assume the President and I would assume that the President made that decision.
1: Did you participate in any briefing of the President on that subject?
0: I do not recall uh, actually sitting down in a meeting with the President. I know that there were several meetings with the President on that issue, and I don't recall specifically being with the President on the final formulation, no.
1: And, uh, and then you've, you've been through testimony, which we will not repeat about all of this scrambling to find a way within the law to do the transaction without notifying Congress, correct? That is correct. And uh, all of these different s- strategies and, and versions of the transaction that Mr. Niels took you through represented an effort to find a way within uh, the various statutes as interpreted by the Attorney General to uh, sell the arms without the notification to Congress. That's correct.
0: That is correct.
1: And. Uh, On that uh, subject, you had uh, the Attorney General giving advice, correct? Attorney General blessed the form of the transaction.
0: It, It was my recollection, as I think I testified yesterday, that I actually carried the draft finding over to the Attorney General. I may be incorrect on that, but my recollection is that I met with the Attorney General and One of his deputies, I believe it was Mr. Jensen, uh, got his approval on the finding, the procedures we were using, and the finding was subsequently signed by the president.
1: And and, uh, were you also uh, party to any discussions in which the Secretary of Defense said that he had cleared this with his legal counsel?
0: I, I don't recall talking to Secretary Weinberger directly about it. I may,
1: I may have. Were you present at any meetings where the Secretary of Defense expressed his objection to the whole transaction? No. Were you present at any meetings at which the Secretary of State expressed his objections to the whole transaction? Not that I recall. Uh, were you told of that, that they were still opposed in January? That can be answered yes, no, I think.
0: Yes, I suppose I, I, had, I had heard that they were opposed, but I did not hear then the stringent objections that have since been indicated. Now, uh,
1: you did draft the cover memo, uh, which is um, uh, exhibit 9, exhibit 60 for the January 17 finding, did you not? Which, which exhibit it is, is prepared that? by uh, Oliver North. It's exhibit 60. Exhibit 60, and it's a memo from uh, Admiral Poindexter to, to the president. It has the famous, president was briefed verbally from this paper, vice president. Don where, where are we reading from here? We're reading from the uh, third page, et cetera. That's the, uh, the cover memo for the finding. You drafted that. Page oh. three. Counsel. What page, Mr. Lyman? Well, page three has it, uh, what I just uh, was reading in handwriting. It says, prepared by uh, Olive L. North.
0: Yes, I see it.
1: And uh, were you present when the briefing occurred, if you recall?
0: I do not recall.
1: And. The, uh, if you look at the first page, it says in the last lines on the first page, because the last four or five lines up, because of the requirements in U.S. law for recipients of U.S. arms to notify the U.S. government of transfers to third countries, I do not recommend that you agree with the specific details of the Israeli plan. However, there's another possibility some time ago Attorney General William French Smith determined that under an appropriate finding, you could authorize the CIA to sell arms to countries outside of the provisions of the law and reporting requirements for mar- foreign military sales. The objectives of the Israeli plan could be met if the CIA, using an, a- an authorized agent as necessary, purchased arms from the Department of Defense under the Economy Act and then transferred them to Iran directly after receiving appropriate payment from. Uh, Iran. You recall that. I do. And uh, do you um, also recall in this memorandum to the president that you indicated that uh, if all of the hostages were not released after the first 1,000 toes were shipped, that further transfers would cease. That's the next to last paragraph on the page.
0: Yes, it does.
1: And do you remember that it was in fact the stated policy of the President that he would try to um, to get the hostages back by a, um, a uh, initial shipment of toes, but if They didn't deliver them all. It would stop.
0: Like that was clearly the intent when this was prepared in January.
1: That's correct. And did you in fact receive, in, um, in, uh, the uh, month or so preceding the Tehran trip, instructions from Admiral Poindexter that there would be no. Uh, delivery. There was to be no delivery of arms unless those hostages were released first.
0: I'm sorry would you say that part again? Did you receive instructions
1: from Admiral Poindexter before the Tehran trip that there would be no delivery of arms unless all the hostages were released?
0: I recall that being the specific objective and I think that was our specific objective in each of these transactions that we would seek to limit uh, any further transfers unless we got them all home immediately. But I think it is important to recognize that those of us who were engaged in the endeavor, particularly myself, General Secord, Mr. Cave, recognized that there was probably going to have to be some give and take. And I think that we made every effort to, to. achieve the primary objective, all the hostages home, and then proceed with the initiative in its broader sense as we had originally defined it, but that the Iranians were unwilling uh, throughout, not necessarily just because of Mr. Gorbanifar, but to proceed apace so that they did not lose all of what they considered to be their leverage. I do not believe at any point that we had solid evidence, nor do we today or did we at the point in time when I left, anyway, that the Iranians exercised the kind of total control over the Hezbollah in Lebanon that many people imagined. In other words, they, the Iranians, were unable, not just unwilling, but unable to snap their fingers and cause all of the hostages to be released at any given moment.
1: Colonel, who was calling the shots on these negotiations for the United States? On the trip that I went with with Mr. McFarland, clearly he was the chief negotiator. And on the instructions that preceded the trip, the authorization as to how far you could go, who called the shots on that? Well, certainly Admiral Poindexter gave the guidance. And do you recall, and this is exhibit 276, that Admiral Poindexter sent you a saying, you may go ahead and go, but I want several points made clear to them, meaning the Iranians, there are not to be any parts delivered until all the hostages are free in accordance with the plan that you laid out for me before. None of this half-shipment before any are released crap. It is either all or nothing. Also, you may tell them that the president is getting very annoyed at their continual stalling. And there were other craft messages to that effect, such as craft message 277, which is to um, uh, uh, Mr. McFarlane, which says, is April 21. Here is the update on what we discussed Saturday. Blank is the uh, Iranian. I'm
0: I'm missing you on 277.
1: I'm sorry 279. It says, here is the update we discussed on Saturday, referring to Mr. McFarlane and Admiral Poindexter. It says, and the name is, a name is deleted for the Iranian official, wants all of the hawk parts delivered before the hostages are released. I have told Ali that we cannot do that. The sequence has to be, one, meeting, two, release of hostages, three, delivery of hawk parts. The president is getting quite discouraged by this effort. This will be our last effort to make a deal with the Iranians. And then it says the next step is a Frankfurt meeting with the North Cave and the Iranian, whose name is blank, out. You remember that those were your instructions. That's correct. And is it also a fact that when you were in Tehran, the Iranians suggested that they might be able to get two hostages released if you were prepared to proceed on that basis?
0: I recall that, but I also recall testifying to this committee that when we arrived in Tehran, it was evident that Far had lied to both sides, and there were expectations on the part of the Iranians that we were unwilling to meet. And my sense is that they made an effort to compromise based on what they had told Far before we arrived. And Far had not relayed to us. And the fact is, the Iranians took several steps, as best we were able to determine, to make those compromises, given their rather difficult political situation. The compromise
1: was two hostages for the arms. For the parts. For the parts. Yes. Well, the parts were parts for missiles, right? Yes technical huh? parts, they weren't warheads or anything like that. Well, but they were but, uh, parts that were necessary for those missiles and warheads to go and hit their targets, right? Absolutely. But, but what, what the point I'm trying to make, Council,
0: is that we were misled by Gorbanifar, and so were the Iranians. And the fact is, we had consistently tried to get beyond Gorbanifar and the Israelis to establish our own direct contact. And when we got there, there was a willingness, the Iranians expected us by what we were able to to determine from them to have arrived with everything. And when we didn't have everything, in fact, they kept looking up in the skies for another airplane. And when we didn't have everything, they asked, where were the other parts? Furthermore, I don't believe that the Iranians were ever told by Gorbanifar that we were expecting all of the hostages to be released that day. They very clearly indicated to Mr. Cave and myself on numerous occasions, both in the first and the second channel, that that was something that was probably beyond their capabilities. And that if all of the hostages were released simultaneously, it would be very clear to the whole wide world, which they did not want, that the Iranians were indeed the principal holders of the hostages. One of our proposals was to take a European who had been engaged in this effort, a humanitarian effort, and have him go to Tehran and have all the hostages received there. The Iranians said, for heaven's sakes, the last thing in the world we want is all the hostages here. This This is not our doing. These are people who have a philosophical loyalty but not necessarily control
1: in Tehran. Now, Colonel... Uh, Given the fact that Gabonifar couldn't pass a lie detector test on his own name, it didn't surprise you that Gabonifar was acting like a broker, telling each side what it wanted to hear. That wasn't a shock to you. Not at all. The the level of deception in this particular case was immense. Now, you also said that, um, um, uh, that it was clear that the uh, Iranians might not have control over all of the hostages. Is that so? That is correct. Now, when the president was giving all of these instructions that we're not going to ship arms to Iran in, in uh, breach of our own policy policy staunch unless we get the hostages back, did anyone say to the president of the United States that... They don't control the hostages?
0: I believe that there are memoranda for me, there are certainly uh, clear indications from the Director of Central Intelligence, that we viewed this to be, first of all, a very, very difficult undertaking. It is, after all, the only one that ever brought any Americans home. And we recognize that. And if the inference is that I exceeded my mandate, I'll dispute that with you. We very clearly tried to present to the president, certainly I tried to present to my superiors, uh, what the facts were as we knew them. And and we modified the plan sometimes on scene and sometimes in route, and sometimes in the intervening days between
1: meetings. Uh, General Secord, was over in Israel, indicated that he thought we should have grabbed the deal for the two hostages. Did you um, advocate that when you were in Tehran? I don't know what that has to do with this. Did you? I did. And you were overruled? I was. And you were overruled by higher authority? Mr. McFarlane was in charge of the trip. And Mr. McFarlane was in communication with Washington? And so was I. And were you told by Admiral Poindexter that the deal is clear. All the hostages have to be released, but no more arms?
0: I don't believe I I communicated that directly to Admiral Poindexter. I certainly articulated my opinion to Mr. McFarlane. Mr. McFarlane
1: made a decision and I saluted smartly and carried it out. Well didn't Mr McFarlane have instructions from the President of the United States on what he could give and what he couldn't? Apparently so. Well, you knew that, didn't you? I was not present when Mr. McFarlane was briefed by the President. But you received these instructions yourself from Admiral Poindexter. That's correct. And you understood that the decisions here were being made in the Oval Office. That's Did correct. You? And uh, is this testimony that you're giving now criticism of the fact that the decision was made to stand firm with the Iranians?
0: I am not criticizing the president's decisions, Admiral Poindexter's decision, or Mr. McFarland. My role as a subordinate on the NSC staff was to provide advice and input. My advice at the
1: time was to take the two hostages and go home. Was the American foreign policy being driven to a great extent by concern about the welfare for these hostages?
0: Undoubtedly it was. But I viewed, and I think certainly Admiral Poindexter viewed, in all of my discussions with the Iranians and the Israelis and others, I viewed the hostages as an obstacle. The obstacle had to be overcome like a hurdle before you could proceed on down the track, to use a, a little allegory. And what I'm saying to you is that If we could have gotten beyond the hostage issue, it would have been palatable publicly, internationally, and every other way to have meetings with high-level Iranian officials, first privately and ultimately publicly. And I viewed it all as a step-by-step
1: process. Did there ever come a moment when you asked yourself, why doesn't the Secretary of State agree with me? Why doesn't the Secretary of Defense agree with me? They don't have to agree
0: with me. I wasn't—I was simply providing advice and input, and recommendations and options to my superiors. When they gave me direction, I carried them out. Now, I wasn't asking for the Secretary of State to agree with me.
1: Now, Colonel, uh, Mr. McFarland testified that uh, there was a sense of dejection. Uh, after this trip and that you told him at the tarmac in in, uh, Israel, you know, not everything worked out so bad, don't feel so poorly about it, Uh, we uh, got some money for uh, the Contras out of the proceeds. you remember that?
0: I don't recall doing it specifically on the tarmac. in Airport, but I'm sure I said
1: it to him at some point in that process. Now, you testified that the concept of, um, of using the uh, proceeds uh, from the Iranian sale to support the Contras uh, was first suggested, as you recall it, by Gabonafar in that either January or February meeting. I believe it was a January meeting. January meeting. And at the time that he made the a suge- a suggestion, there was a profit built into the transaction. Well, let's do it this way. There, there were the the uh, uh, plan that the president had approved involved 4,000 toes. Do you recall that?
0: I'm trying to think if that preceded or succeeded the January well, meeting. The I...
1: January, I will represent to you that the proposals that are described in in the uh, various memoranda, including those that that went up the line, were for four thousand toes. okay, And you knew, and the documents show this that the Iranians were prepared to uh, To pay to uh, uh, the Seacourt organization uh, $10,000. Whatever Gabonifar was going to get, $10,000 per tow was going to flow to the Seacourt organization, right? That's correct. And you understood at some point that the uh, Department of Defense was going to charge something like $3,500 a tow, right? Something like that, because the price seemed to change every time you well, asked for the price. There was at one point it was six thousand a tow, and if it was six thousand a tow, then the gross profit on four thousand tows, before expenses of transportation and so forth, would be sixteen million. Four thousand times uh, four thousand. Uh, if uh, you know the price was, as it turned out to be, about $3,500 a tow. Then the gross profit was over $25 million, right? Okay. Yeah. And so uh, there were there was if this transaction went.